Last Sunday, I played a uh, video clip of a cat trying to escape. I uh, played it because it illustrated, you know, the, the word in the text, but I still got a number of emails and comments, mostly from people who don't think I'm being fair. I don't imagine why I can't, they'd think that. But one comment said, I, I haven't been up front with the fact that cats are actually very smart, bright, and dogs are not. <laughs> One of my staff members even put on my desk, so I see it on Monday, just this past Monday. It's called Excerpts from a Dog's Diary and Excerpts from a Cat's Diary that really says it all. Here you go. Excerpts from a Dog's Diary, 8 a.m., dog food, my favorite thing. 9.30, a car ride with a window down, my favorite thing. 1 o'clock, played in the yard, my favorite thing. 3 o'clock, milk bones, my favorite thing. 8 o'clock, watch TV with the people, my favorite thing. And on and on and on it goes. Excerpts from a cat's diary. It begins, day 983 of my captivity. (laughs) My captors continue to taunt me with little dangling objects. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. Speaking of dreams, you cat, this is all for the cat owners out here today, by the way, just to get, get out of hot water. Somebody sent me a video clip cat owners will enjoy because it shows a dog in a less than, well, uh, less than sophisticated state of mind. Uh, we found it uh, when looking for it, and we've got it ready here. It's a dog who's obviously dreaming of being chased. He's sleeping on his side, and he literally begins to run in his sleep. And just about the time that whatever it is that is chasing him catches up to him, the dog wakes up still running and runs into a wall. (laughs) So for all the cat owners, this is fair play. Let's show the clip. Now, are the cat owners happy, huh? There's four of you out there, okay? (laughs) But all four of you are saying, that's why I have a cat. (laughs) Now, how do I fit that in my sermon? Well, I did find it interesting as I was researching this paragraph in James chapter 3, which you can turn to now, that the Scottish author best-selling author, Robert Louis Stevenson, literally dreamed the plot of one of his novels, in fact, one of his best known. In his dream, he ended up crying out so loudly that his wife woke him up, fearing for him, and he got onto her saying, I wish you hadn't awakened me. I was in the middle of dreaming that I was literally being transformed. It will make a wonderful book. Within six days of that and feverish writing, Robert Louis Stevenson's unconscious thoughts between good and evil took the form of this short novel he entitled The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The story is told through the eyes of an attorney. If you read it in middle school or high school, the attorney is a friend of Dr. Jekyll's, but he's concerned because Dr. Jekyll has these long periods of absence and isolation unknown to him and the rest of society. 
Dr. Jekyll had actually invented a potion that allowed him to transform into someone that he went about saying, uh, calling himself, uh, was Mr. Hyde. He's able then to, to prowl around town, getting involved in all sorts of sinful uh, behavior, and he does it without ruining or dirtying, sullying the character of the good, upstanding Dr. Jekyll. The trouble is, as the novel continues, the evil Mr. Hyde gains more and more power. He's stronger and stronger over Dr. Jekyll until he is able to transform without Dr. Jekyll drinking the potion or willing it to happen. He's unable to control Mr. Hyde. The evil side of Dr. Jekyll is growing more and more powerful. Dr. Jekyll writes a letter explaining the battle and then takes his own life in order to end the life of Mr. Hyde, who has only recently actually committed murder. In his dying moments, Jekyll transforms into Mr. Hyde, who can do nothing to save himself. And when the authorities arrive, they find Mr. Hyde dead, wearing the clothing of Dr. Jekyll. The mystery is solved by the letter which explains that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are one and the same man. The book became a bestseller. Most critics believe it to be so because it it, it played out this, what everyone struggles with. It, It played out in flesh and blood this battle within. One man is upright and responsible. The other is wicked and evil and murderous. To this day, 125 years after its first publication, we have that phrase that we will use of someone who is one way and then he transforms into another. He is a Jekyll and Hyde. It's interesting as I studied this text that came to me that James is effectively describing us in the same way, only he isn't writing fiction. In this letter from James, moved along by the Spirit of God, James, the half-brother of our Lord, will reveal that we have this battle within and it finds its way out of and through our mouths, our speech. He has told us that the tongue is a bit, or like a bit in a horse's mouth, a rudder of a ship. It's small, but it is directive, powerful. He went on to write in our last session, if you were with us, that the tongue is like a forest fire. It's like a venomous snake. It's a a restless animal waiting to, to find escape. We covered eight different descriptions given to us by James of the tongue in our last session. I gave them to you and they all began with the letter D. The tongue is destructive, depraved, defiling, determinative, diabolical, disobedient, dangerous, and deadly. And we could, in this message, continue the idea with a ninth point, calling the tongue duplicitous. I'm not sure it's a good idea to use words and points that we don't know how to spell. Somebody came up to me afterward and said, just say it's, it's divided, and that's an excellent word. It has a dichotomy built in. I, I think it was simplest spoken by that Indian chief in the Old Western. You probably saw where, where the, the old chief looks into, into the camera and he says, white man speak with what? Forked tongue. It's the truth. 
No matter who you are, by the way, because the tongue is not a problem of nationality. It is a problem of nature, our human nature. We all have living with us, within us, as fallen though redeemed believers, a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. And it is a struggle for life because Mr. Hyde is always wanting to take over. The battle goes back and forth. And that's what James confesses to. We left off with verse 9. Let's pick it up there with what we'll call James' honest confession. He writes in chapter 3, verse 9, With it, that is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Now it's encouraging that James again shifts back to using this first person plural pronoun, we. He doesn't write and he doesn't say, all of you out there getting this letter, you got a problem. He says, we. We all do this. Whether you're a mature disciple of Jesus Christ or a newborn believer, you have discovered you're involved in a battle. It's a battle of Jekyll and Hyde proportions. We've got a battle within. One Greek scholar illustrated this verse in very practical terms in a little different way than I'm used to hearing it. He said this, we all have two dogs inside us, a good dog and a bad dog, and they both want to bark through the same mouth. It's good, isn't it? They both want to bark through the same mouth. So which one are we allowing to bark today? Neither one of these dogs is sleeping, by the way. And this isn't a dream. So what I want to do is take a closer look at this battle. James writes in verse 9, With the same tongue we can bless our Lord and Father, which happens to be the highest and noblest employment of the tongue, the Puritans would say. And it's true. When we sang together moments ago, to God be the glory, I stand in awe of you. Jesus paid it all. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. We could not have directed our mouths and used our tongues with anything more holy and honorable and glorious than that. In fact, it's one of the blessings of the assembly. When we're we're coerced by our brothers and sisters around us to raise our collective voices and forget about ourselves and focus on the glory and the sufficiency and the honor of our Lord and Father, whom we bless. James says we use our tongues to bless God. The word bless is interesting. It's eulogumen. It's a compound word, U, E-U, meaning good or well, and lagos, meaning word, good word. We're delivering good words. We're speaking well of someone. Eulogumen gives us our transliterated English uh, word eulogy. And we've contained the context of that word to a funeral where the deceased is eulogized. He is spoken well of. Good things are said about him. 
no matter how badly he lived, no matter how wickedly she may have lived, somebody will think of something good to say, which is a good thing. That's a eulogy. According to James, a eulogy is not reserved for funerals. In fact, we ought to eulogize more often, not only the living, but our Lord. Now, the dispersed Jewish believers to whom James was writing would have immediately understood the context of and the concept of eulogizing God, blessing God. Whenever the name of God was spoken in his hearing, he was to respond with, Blessed be he, blessed be he, blessed be he. Three times a day, the devout Jew in James' generation, and even to this day, they will repeat, the Jews, devout Jews will repeat prayers called eulogies. And every one of them begins with the words, Blessed be thou, O Lord. So what James is saying, understood by them immediately, and to us after explanation, it's easy to bless God, to eulogize God, to say good things about God, to say bless God, praise God, whatever. And then with the same mouth, curse another person. The word curse isn't a reference to profanity, by the way. Vulgarity, there are other verses in the New Testament for that. It's a word that carries the idea of demeaning, cutting, unkind, condescending words. To call down curses, which is a literal translation of the verb. It's a reference to slander, gossip, accusation, which in this context, by the way, is referring to those within the faith. Referring to those who follow after God. We would say today, those inside the church, so to speak. There's another nuance to this verb as well. The Christian does this kind of cursing, this kind of demeaning speech, only because they view themselves as better than the person to whom they're speaking. So that's the nuance. You are calling down curses. You are speaking down to someone else. That means you're higher up in your view. You're above them. You're placing yourself on the pedestal. And from up here, you're open season. When the believer has that idea, he is literally using his mouth for both blessing God then and because he views himself as better than another curses man. People might say, now you know that's not so bad. I mean, come on, think about it. At least we're not saying bad things about God. We're saying bad things about people, but at least we're singing hymns and choruses in church. We're saying, bless the Lord. We, we will pray several times this week, per, perhaps before we eat or maybe in some quiet time. And we're going to say wonderful things to God. We're not going to say bad things to Him. So it can't be that bad. And James effectively says, I knew you'd say that, and I knew you'd be thinking that way. So let me just tie off that loophole, which he does in the very next phrase. And with our tongue we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. There's a volume in there. We are blessing God. We're cursing man. James says, may I remind you that those you are cursing have been made in the likeness of God. 
Now let me pause for a moment because there's great doctrinal truth here even though mankind has fallen. Even those who do not believe, sin has defiled, but it has not destroyed the image of God stamped uniquely upon mankind. In fact, the perfect tense of this verb in verse 9, who have been made, means that the image of God, those unique qualities of conscience, moral reasoning, objective will, they have been made, which means those qualities were not entirely obliterated following the fall. We still bear the mark. One of those, obviously, would be conscience, which uniquely binds man to the right and condemns man when he does wrong. Those who believe and those who do not believe show they have the image of God and that they both know what's right or wrong. Mankind, ladies and gentlemen, is not some slightly more evolved animal. If that is true, then even the mentor, one of the mentors of Darwin said, if we do believe that, man then has the freedom to act like an animal. Animals can kill their young. And on the sanctity of human life Sunday, what an appropriate thought to have. And we're more than that. We are the crowning act of God's creation. We are uniquely crafted after his image. In fact, all of the rest of the creatures are given to us to enjoy, subdue, and rule. We have these distinctives, including but not totally in the list, morality and spirituality and and a conscience. You know, an animal does not struggle with a guilty conscience. My dog Pixie is proof of that. She never struggles with a guilty conscience. I've got evidence. She's a mutt. The offspring of Patches, our dog, which delivered several litters that I gave away to many of you as quickly as I could. She's the last of the litter, so we decided to keep her. Patches, her mother, is a mix of a basset hound and a beagle. And somehow she got tangled up with, with the neighbor's dog, who is a great terrier and schnauzer mix, which means Pixie is one ugly dog. <laughs> Fur going everywhere. She looks like she has her paw perpetually stuck in an outlet. <laughs> she will bark. And she'll howl, and she'll, she'll whine with this high-pitched whine. i gotta, I got to open the back door. Pixie! Stop it! Neighbors are going, there's the pastor yelling at his dog. <laughs> she'll bark and bark and bark. Anybody that walks through the cul-de-sac, she'll bark. The little boy that runs through the yard, she'll just howl and howl and bark and bark for coming into her neighborhood. Certainly her yard. And after doing all of that, she will never go back and lie down in her doghouse and think to herself, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but that hurt that little boy's feelings. No, I don't expect Pixie to think that way. James evidently expects us to think that way. We of all creatures should think not only of what we're saying, but to whom. Now, what does that have to do with offending God? 
We're not talking to God. We're talking to people. We're blessing him. Praise God. And then we're cursing others. Is James exaggerating the connection between insulting mankind and insulting God? No, I don't think so. In fact, think of it this way. Suppose that you're invited over to a home for dinner and you walk in with others and you're walking with your wife by a painting you see on the wall and you whisper to your wife, I hope they didn't pay much for that. It's horrible. Only to discover that the artist is your host who overheard you. So what would you say? <laughs> you know, don't take it so hard. Look, look I, I wasn't criticizing you. I was only criticizing your work. That's the point. You cannot separate the two. Anyone who insults another human being with unfair, unkind, demeaning, condescending, gossiping, criticizing speech has just insulted the artist because the artist created that as his work. So to go one layer further in, James is, is, is making the point God is as interested in what we say to each other out there as he is in what we say to him in here. And saying what we say to him in here does not give us a free pass on what we say to others out there. You cannot bless God in here and belittle everybody else in your world. James says that is exactly what we're doing with our speech. This is our battle. Now after this honest confession, which we would all appreciate because we find ourselves in the same kettle, James delivers an earnest confrontation. Look at verse 10. He says this, and it's point blank again. James never did put the gloves on. They've always been off throughout the entire letter. My brethren, again, he's including himself with them. He's talking to believers as well. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. This ought not to be. It's a strong negative. In fact, the only time it appears in the New Testament, it is here. This ought not to be. It's interesting that he would say it that way, and we need to make sure we understand what he's saying. Earlier in the letter, James has effectively said, this is how it will be if you are a believer. Works will follow your faith. This is how it will be if you're a believer. Now he says, this is how it shouldn't be, but might be if you're a believer. James is not saying that a believer will never speak out of both sides of his mouth. He is saying that a believer should not do that. These things ought not to be this way. There is absolutely no loophole in that. That's it. There it is. It is your battle. It is my battle. And you cannot excuse it. There's no loophole. No, no escape clause. This is it. It shouldn't be this way. It's like the voice you might hear in your head. Shame on you. Stop that. That's what he's saying. It's convicting, isn't it? How convicting is this? You know, I can't wait to finish the book of James. In fact, I was wondering, could we take a break? You know, study something easier to grasp like election and free will. Those are easier to study than this is to apply. But according to James' imperatives, and he's speaking with imperatives, 
He's telling us that when God redeemed our spirit, he gave us through his spirit the capacity to renovate our speech as we surrender to that spirit of God. And be aware that that renovation project is going to take you a lot longer than it did to do your kitchen or that upstairs bathroom or that walk-in attic. It'll last your lifetime, but it'll be worth every step because of the power of your tongue to bless and to heal. Now, if you're like most people involved in one of those renovation projects, pictures help, don't they? And James does just that now. He gives us three outdoor pictures to describe what we are pursuing, this sanctified speech. He shows us pictures of a fountain, a fig tree, and fresh water. They're, for the most part, self-explanatory. But look at verse 11. He says, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water, implication, at the same time? James is, by the way, not referring to a man-made fountain. He's referring to a gushing fountain from a mountain crevice. And the strata of earth underneath that mountain may include both sweet and bitter water. His point is, out of the same opening, there will come water of one kind or another. Not both at the same time. So what kind of fountain are we? What's coming out of the opening? I like the metaphor of one author who said it this way. He said, within the mountain of self, there's a great struggle for there are two streams within, but only one opening. If God had meant it otherwise, he would have created us with two mouths, one for blessing God and another for cursing our fellow man. But he created only one. So the more practical question would be, what kind of fountain will you and I be today? What will be delivered? What will gush out? Bitter water or sweet? Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine, a reference to the grapevine, can a grapevine produce figs? These questions are expecting the reader to respond with absolutely not. We, we know that can't be. So here, here James says, look, you want to check the progress, the temperature of your heart, which no one can see. Check out the fruits of your words, of your lips. You found it to be true, haven't you? As you battle, when your heart is right, your words are right. When your heart is pure, your words are pure. When you're walking with Christ, there are words that Christ would would be proud to own. When your heart is surrendered to the Spirit of God, your words are sweet and satisfying. Again, in the last phrase of verse 12, nor can salt water produce fresh Water. Literally, a salt spring will not produce sweet or fresh water. Now, I want you to follow this carefully. James' point is that one kind of water cannot transform itself into another kind of water by itself. In the same way, our tongues, which have been natural conduits for evil ever since the fall, cannot produce good things on our own. James is doing more than exposing the problem even though he ends abruptly. 
in, in the mind of the believer, if you've been in the faith very long and you've gotten to know some of the New Testament, your mind as minded goes immediately to Galatians chapter 5, where we, we, we are given the record of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And how does that fruit appear? If you go back and look at those words, most of it makes an appearance through, by means of, speech, words, the tongue. So James has shown us that our speech has the power to direct, to determine, to destroy, and to delight because there's nothing more refreshing than cold water when you're thirsty or fruit when you're hungry. Solomon wrote it this way in Proverbs 12:18, the tongue of the wise person brings health. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he said, "Listen, it's my prayer request that when I come to you, I might refresh you." It's a great prayer request, isn't it? Lord, help me today as I mingle in here and as I leave and as I show up at work tomorrow and whatever I do, that I will refresh with my words. Paul wrote to the Colossians this way, let your speech always be accompanied by grace. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. So what does that look like? Well, your home, your marriage, your church, your relationships should be marked by these fruitful, refreshing qualities. Danny Aiken, a friend of our church, president of Southeastern Seminary, who's spoken here for me on a couple of occasions, I had his manuscript on this text, which I found helpful, and he, before preaching it, asked some of his friends to send him things never to be said or should never be said to a spouse. And he also listed things that we should say to others or shouldn't say to others, including the extended family. And I've sort of put them all together and mixed them all up. And I'll just give them to you quickly so that we can get past them. You're just like your mother. You're just like your father. I can talk to you until I'm blue in the face and it doesn't do any good. I told you so. You're always in a bad mood. I can do whatever I want. You're such a baby. You deserve a taste of your own medicine. What were you thinking? What's your problem? You're impossible. You will never amount to anything. I don't know why I put up with you. Do you always have to be right? All you ever do is think about yourself. Can't you see I'm busy? Can't you do anything right? You'd lose your head if it wasn't screwed on. 
Don't you ever listen? It's all your fault. Go away. You'll never change. That's calling down curses, demeaning, critical speech. And what does refreshing, healing, gracious speech sound like? Didn't take long to come up with a brief list. I love you. Thank you. I appreciate you. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I forgive you. I'm glad God gave you to me. I really appreciate your help. Let me do that for you. I'm here for you. I can't wait to see what God's going to do in your life. I'm praying for you. I'm proud of you. What a difference. We alternate between those two lists, do we not? When we choose refreshing, cool, water-like words, they are like apples of gold in pitchers of silver. Danny Aiken also told the story of a father who took his little girl out for a daddy date. She was around seven years of age. They'd chosen a restaurant where they could get pancakes. After getting their food and praying, this dad decided it would be a good time to give her the speech that he'd worked on. He began, Jenny, I I want you to know how much I love you and how special you are to mom and me. We prayed for you for years, and now that you're here and growing up to be such a wonderful little girl, well, well, We couldn't be prouder of you. Once he said all this, he stopped talking and reached over for his fork to begin eating, but he never got the fork to his mouth. His daughter reached out her little hand and laid it on her father's. Their eyes met, and in a soft voice, she simply said, Longer, Daddy. Longer. So he put down his fork, and he gave her more words, seasoned with grace, reached for his fork again. No, longer, Daddy. Longer. Every one of us will hear this and say, I'm that little girl. And it's true, we all are in a way. None of us dislike encouraging words. We would like to hear more, wouldn't we? But this isn't the challenge of James' text. James is saying we must choose to be the fountain from which sweet water comes. We must choose to be the tree from which ripe fruit grows. We are the ones who should speak. James is not telling us in this paragraph how to listen to encouraging words. In fact, we frankly don't need a lesson on that one. He's telling us that we need to speak them. This is speech therapy for saints. Don't ever forget, he writes, to whom you are speaking, especially in the context of the faith. Imagine when we speak to one another, we are actually speaking to sons and daughters of God headed for incredible glory. C.S. Lewis 
wrote these powerful words along this line that provoked my thinking in his book entitled The Weight of Glory, a series of addresses. C.S. Lewis, of course, wrote The Tales of Narnia and uh, Mere Christianity and a number of others. He said, he said it this way. Listen, we're almost finished. Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting believer you talk to will one day be a creature which, if you saw him as he will be, you would be strongly tempted to worship him. It is in light of this that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. What a reminder. The best way to get started is to join in with James in this honest confession. If this is James' battle, it, it is ours. Can we not confess it as well? We have within us a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. This is an honest confession. And then accept his earnest confrontation. These things ought not to be. There is no excuse. There's no escape clause. There's no loophole. We can't say, well, that's the way I'm made. So I will curse men while I bless God. It's not in the text. A man came up to John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, a couple of centuries ago. And he said to him, Mr. Wesley, after a sermon, he said, I want you to know that my talent is rebuke. To which Wesley responded, I believe God would be happy if you buried that talent. <laughs> and then we pursue with all surrender to Christ in daily renovation. So get your tools ready. You're in the middle of it. We are in need of it. God is worthy of it. Amen? We are in need of it, and God is more than worthy of every surrender to his glory and honor. You may have noticed that this paragraph and this theme ends abruptly. James is a lot like his half-brother of the Lord who preached and ended with a condemnation. He doesn't solve the problem, but he will give practical help in the next paragraph as he shifts to the topic of how to become wise. How to know if you're thinking straight. Lord willing, next Lord's Day we'll get into that with a series, a word to the wise, and we'll find out if we're among them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It does exactly what the psalmist David said it would. It enlightens us. It directs us. It provokes us to that path which is truly righteous. On the one hand, it is striking and painful and convicting. On the other, it soothes. It heals. It offers to us the invitation to take a look at our 
words and the meditation of our heart. And, and it points to the Holy One who is our rock and our redeemer. Father, we would gather about us tools to, to continue or maybe even today to begin with fresh earnestness this renovation project. We leave a little more aware of who we are and, and I trust even more surrendered to the Spirit of God who lives within us for we can do none of this on our own. And so we bless you and we pray that your Spirit will guide and guard our mouths to bless one another. Let's end our service much like we began by lifting our voices in unified, with unified tongues, singing one more time our blessing to God. Praise God from whom all blessings